We're in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. So if you would turn with me in your Bible to 1 John chapter 3. How's everybody doing? How many of you had a good day today? All right. How many of you had a bad day today? Anybody? Hey, that's, hey, we had one. Sorry you had a bad day today. How many of your day was just kind of in between? All right. How many of you enjoyed the weather today? Yeah, it was great. So pretty crazy, this warm weather we're getting. Let's pray together and ask that God would meet us. Father, we thank you for who you are and your love for us. Thanks that we're your children, your sons and your daughters. And God, we pray that we would understand uh, what it means to live in your love, to, to grow in love for you and love for others. Pray that you would protect uh, this from just becoming routine and in, in what we do on Wednesday night, but an opportunity to meet with you. Father, we give you our attention. I ask that you'd begin to, to speak to us even now. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's some families that you can't help but live in their shadow. If you are born into one of these families, it's going to affect you and form who you are. We think of uh, the Trump family. If you were born into that family, imagine the kind of pressure that comes into having the last name Trump or the Kennedys. I mean, it's pretty much uh, written in your DNA that you're going to go into politics if you're a Kennedy. Or the Bush family, you know, two presidents from the, the Bush family. That comes with quite a, a large uh, shadow. Also, if you are, have the last name Graham, uh, growing up in that generation with Billy Graham and his, his son, uh, and it's, there's a lot of pressure that, that comes uh, with that. Tonight we're going to look at what does it mean to be a child of God? So, so what does it mean to not be in the shadow of that, but the reality of that? We're going to begin in this chapter with God reminding us how much he loves us as our father. And the rest of that chapter is then how do we live as children of God? How do we live in that love? And one of the things that we find about John, in a very compassionate but direct way, he challenges uh, if we claim to know God, if we claim to, to be in his love, then that needs to be lived out in loving one another. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. So stop and consider. Behold. Behold is to see, and we're to stop and see and perceive the manner of love the Father has given to us. So let's stop and consider that for just a moment. What kind of love has the Father bestowed upon us, poured out upon us? The Father's love is consistent, isn't it? It it doesn't change. It's faithful. Uh, The Father's love is unconditional. It's not based upon what we do or what we don't do. It's sacrificial. The Father sent his Son in order that we could be his his children. It's hard for us to to put words or be able to describe uh, the love of God. The love of God is very personal, that that he would be our our father. When we look at the love of God, it's in this relationship of of father and sons and daughters. What what love the father has, has given to us that we could be called the children of God. In John chapter one, it says, to whoever believes on Christ has been given the right to be called the children of God. If you believe in Christ and trust him as your savior, then you've been given the right to be called uh, the child of God. 
Also in John's gospel, Jesus said this and prayed this. He says, and have loved them as you have loved me. So the Father loves us the way that he loves Christ. That's amazing. There's a, a story of uh, two boys uh, signing up to play Little League, and they're brothers, and they're six months apart, and they're, they're signing up, and the person signing them up says, well, you guys are brothers, and you're six months apart. Uh, one of you must, must be adopted. Which one of you is adopted? And they say, well, we ask our dad all the time, and he says he forgot, <laughs> right? That's a, that's a smart answer from the dad, right? Like, I, I love you both the same. It's, it doesn't really matter to me which one is, is adopted and which one is, is biological. And this is a hard truth for us to register for our own heart and lives that the Father loves us with the same love that he has for Jesus, the same love that he has for, for the Son. We, we would think, well, the Father's love is greater for Jesus because he's lovable. But then there's me. And, and God declares the same love that he has for Jesus, he has for you. He's bestowed his love upon you. And as we meditate and we relish the love of God, then that affects us and impacts the way that we we love others. This is foundational to the rest of the chapter. If we don't really understand and live in the love of the Father, it's going to be difficult for for us to love others the way that God intends. We've got to receive his love, live in his love, to then be able to express that, that love to others. This is something that we want to do continually in our lives, is to behold the love of our Father to gaze at the love of our Father, to receive and believe that we have been given the spirit of adoption by which we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. You know, for some reason, for me, uh, you know, father-child relationships uh, are very impactful. In my own life, with my kids, uh, watching them uh, in, in movies, you know, one thing you can count on with every new Star Wars movie that comes out, there's gonna be a child-parent thing happening. That's what... Star Wars is all about. It, it's always going back to this, this theme of parents and children and how deep that that, that runs. And recently we watched a, a movie on a Friday night and it's a true story about a dad in the 50s who shortly after he was married and, and had his first kid, he got polio. And at that time there was still a lot of polio that was taking place and he ended up getting paralyzed uh, from the neck down. So you're watching this movie, this, this true story, and the son uh, is, is taking care of his dad throughout the different stages uh, of his life. And most people that had polio to that extent uh, were institutionalized at that time, and the respirators were these big machines that were loud and, and squeaky. Uh, the dad felt like taking his life, ending his life, and his wife pretty much said, end of discussion, like, you, you have to live he said, well, get me out of here. I can't live in this, this institution. So she brought him home. Nobody had done that at, at that point. And they learned how to, to live at home. And then he had a friend who was a professor and an inventor. And he invented a, a wheelchair that then had a battery. Batteries were just coming on the scene to power the, the respirator. They took a lot of risk for him to be mobile. And ended up changing uh, the people's view of those who were severely disabled at the time. For them to not live in institutions and to, to live in common life as much as possible. But there's a scene in this movie where they venture out on this road trip because the husband, the dad, wants, wants to see the sea, and they end up driving uh, to Spain, you know, from, from England to, to, to Spain, and they get, make this huge trek and this huge trip, and then all of a sudden, the battery fails on his, his respirator, 
And so they're out in the middle of nowhere, and his son grabs the pump and hand pumps his dad's lungs uh, overnight while they're, while they're waiting for, for help. And other people come around to help, but in the scene of the movie, it's always the son that has the pump. He, he's about 12 years old, and he's saying, I love my dad. I know my dad loves me, and I'm going to keep him alive. I'm not going to let anybody else t- take the pump. And that, that touched my heart. I'm watching that, and I was like, man, that is powerful. And I think when we experience it in our lives, when we watch it on a movie screen or we read it in a book, but how much more so with our Heavenly Father? To know that He loves us and to be, re- be able to relate to Him as a Father. And I realize for, for some, this is, a, this is a stumbling block because of your own earthly father. But I've got to tell you, even when you have a great earthly father, it's still difficult for some reason to relate to God as a father. Uh, we think about uh, Jesus and the way that He taught us to pray. He says, Our Father, which art in heaven. I remember when I first started lead pastoring, probably in the first two years, uh, a guy came up to me and he said, why do you always start your prayers with God and never with Father? I was like, I don't know. I've never thought about it before, you know. But it's easier for me to relate to God in his power and him being deity than to cry out to him, Daddy, Abba, Father. I mean, how many times have you cried out to God and said, Dad, please help. Dad, I, I love you, and felt that kind of affection toward, towards your Heavenly Father. And so I think to some degree, though I know it's very real, if you've had a, a real painful earthly father, is to be able to say, whether I've had a good dad or a bad dad, I need to set that aside and look at my Heavenly Father and really believe that He loves me and look at the love that He has bestowed upon me and to be able to, to live in that love And the more that we can address God as a father and relate to him as a father, I think the further we're going to move down in this road of love. The the more that this is going to be able to correlate out into love for others. So behold the love of the father that he's bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. We're not going to be popular in this world as Christians. The world's not going to accept us. Why? Because they don't know the Father. So if we're children of the Father, we shouldn't expect that the world's going to love us and accept us and and follow us. Jesus is our master. We're not going to be greater than our master. We're going to experience similar kind of rejection that Christ received. Verse 2 and verse 3 is an amazing promise for us as believers. Hold on to it. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Amen. (laughs) It has not been revealed what we shall be. Look around and go, you know, it hasn't been revealed what we shall be. This brings us great comfort in our lives to go, you know what? I haven't arrived yet. I'm not glorified. I have not reached heaven. I'm on this side of heaven. And then all the believers that we love to realize they too are still in process And they are not yet glorified. But we will know each other in that glorified state in all of eternity. Amen? And to be able to rest and say, man, I have not yet been to that place of of perfected. But thankfully it goes on. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Two great promises. We're going to see him as he is. We will behold God. We're going to see him. 
And then also when we see him, we're going to be made like him. When we have this hope, verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's love's hope. It's the reality of when we're living in love, we have this great hope that we're going to see God and be made like him. Job had the same hope inside of him. If you remember Job's story, he lost his children. They all died in one day. He, he lost his possessions. He lost his health. His friends rally around him and say, Job, this is your fault. This is because of your unrighteousness. When the exact opposite was the truth, he was walking in, in righteousness. And the father allowed him to, to be destroyed by, by, by Satan. And Job's trying to sort all of this out, as you can imagine, as we try to sort out trial in our lives. At the very end of the book of Job, God speaks to Job and gives him some answers. But this is prior to God unveiling things. In the middle of the struggle, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last day on earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job believed that he was going to be resurrected. With these eyes, I'm going to behold God even after my flesh is going to be destroyed. How are we going to behold God after we die? We know ultimately for believers, we're going to receive a resurrected, glorified body. And Job says, these are all the things that I don't know, but what I am confident of is I'm going to see God. You may be having a really challenging season in your life. And if you're God's child, he's your father, you know this, you're going to see him. And what a great day that that's going to be, to behold your father, to, to see God. And then the next thing that's going to happen when you behold God, you're going to be made like him. And the psalmist writes and sings and pins and says that when I wake up in his likeness, I'm going to be satisfied. The ultimate satisfaction is going to come when we see God and we become like him. Do you ever get tired of just struggling with your own sinful flesh? I do. Wouldn't it be nice if you walked with God for a certain amount of time that you just didn't struggle anymore? Or even better, the moment that you got saved, it's like there was no more temptation of sin. But we wrestle with our sin. We wrestle with our anger and our covetousness and, and our lust. And, and to wake up and to see God and to be like him and to no longer struggle with sin. That is going to be a great day. Then also, everybody that we're with in eternity is made like Christ as well. So they're not struggling with sin. So we're not sinning against others and others are not sinning against us. And the Bible says this is our hope. And our hope is our confident expectation of coming good. We, we lay hold of that. We say, this is my future. And we lay hold of that hope, then the Bible says it purifies us. It purifies us. There's something about hope that makes us stronger. They've done experiments with, with rats and, and put them into water drowning and timed how long it takes the rats to drown. Now, for some of you, you might be going, that's terrible, you know, and others of us are like, that sounds like fun, right? You know, make, put me in part of that, that science experiment. And then, so those rats are gone. They're, they're dead to never be resurrected again. And then they got another batch of rats, and they got them right to the point where the other rats passed away, and they pulled them out. 
And then they let them rest and recover and put them back in. And they lived a lot longer. Why? Because they tasted hope. They're like, at any moment, I could be pulled out of this hairy mess. Get it? Rats, hairy mess. (laughs) And for us, if we live our lives going, you know what? At any moment, I could be with the Lord. Christ could return for his church with the rapture. God could call me home. I don't know when my last day is going to be. And we go through our days really looking forward to this expectation of seeing God. Then that's going to purify us. That's going to cause us to live our lives saying, how I live today matters. This could be my last day. Christ could return. I could die and go home to be with the Lord. So I want to make this, this day count. So I hope that God infuses you with hope. Because you're loved. You're loved by the Father. He's bestowed that love upon you. You're the child of God. As a child of God, you have this promise that you're going to see God. And when you see God, you're going to be made, made like him. In verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. This is love's reality from verses 4 through 9. And in these verses, John is really challenging this thought of, as the child of God, I can live in willful, habitual rebellion against God with no conviction or no remorse, and I'm completely fine with the Lord. So this idea that I can receive God's grace and his forgiveness and and be the child of God, but yet do whatever I want. And that's very different than the child of God who's convicted about sin, who's maybe even ensnared in sin or has faltered in sin. I don't want you to read these verses and misunderstand uh, that if you sin, that all of a sudden you're, you're not the child of God. The key to this understanding is in verse 4, whoever commits sin. In the Greek, it's the present perfect tense, which tells us it's a continual action. It's the idea of maybe you want to improve at golf, and you decide to practice your golf swing. And you just habitually go for it, and go for it, and go for it. Something happened to me uh, this summer. I, I normally hate golf, and I played golf, and I actually had fun. And so I've got a little bit of the, the golf fever. But uh, what I do is I just take my golf clubs out into the front yard when the kids are playing around, and I just practice my golf swing. It's, it's the poor man's golf. It's budget golf, right? You know, it's free. I can go to the front lawn and, and just practice. But if you just see me out there, I'm just habitually practicing my swing, you know? It's like, man, he's lost his mind. Or you, you think of a, a young boy learning to play baseball, right? If, if a boy gets into baseball, he gets his bat, and he's just like, I'm just going to practice until the cows come home. I'm just going to keep swinging. I'm just... And there's no ball. There's nobody even throwing the ball. He's just just going for it, and he's practiced it. And this is the idea here with sin. Whoever commits sin or or practices sin as a lifestyle where they look to God and they say, God, I don't care what you say about sin. I'm just going to keep going. I'm the child of God. I can can do what I want. And that's the attitude that, that John is addressing here. So he says, if you're living in this lifestyle of sin without conviction, it's lawlessness. And then verse five, and you know that he was manifest to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. John tells us the reason for which Christ came, the reason for which Christ was manifest and he came to take away sin. The penalty of sin, but also the power of sin, to destroy sin completely. So if I receive Christ as my savior 
and I have this calloused heart towards sin, I've misunderstood why he came. He came because sin destroys and is, it stinks. It, it brings so much damage to God and, and to others. Jesus says it's got to be destroyed. So in receiving Christ, I want to understand that he came to abolish sin. In verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Again, the context is lifestyle. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. John is saying it's important to live as the child of God. So, so you're the child of God. Begin to live that out. God's love is in you. Live that out. And so a person who's righteous is going to practice righteousness. Just like you would practice golf or you would, you would practice baseball, instead of practicing lawlessness, you're saying, I want to discipline myself through the power of the Holy Spirit to live righteously. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. So the second reason that Christ came was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy sin, but also to destroy the works of the devil. In verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now, does this mean as soon as you're born of God that you, you never sin, that you never struggle with sin, that you never give in to sin? No. And how do we know that from the scripture? Because of 1 John chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, what does John say? If you say that you have no sin, you're a liar. And I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if you do sin... You have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John isn't declaring that if you're born of God, you're never going to sin. But what he is declaring is if you're born of God, you're not going to be comfortable in sin. And isn't that true as the life of a believer? When we do sin, because we're God's child, he convicts us. And he won't allow us to be comfortable in our sin. It goes on to say, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God of God. So, so God's work in our lives. So as we contrast the sin and Christ in this paragraph, verses four through nine, we see sin is lawless. Sin is a result of not seeing him or knowing him. Sin is of the devil. Jesus came to take away sin. If we abide in him, we're not sinning. If we practice righteousness, you are righteous. Jesus destroyed, destroyed the work of the devil and then if we're born of God, we don't sin. The key to understanding this is this lifestyle and attitude towards sin. John felt like that it was necessary to put this in his letter. There had to have been a false teaching that was creeping inside of the church with this attitude of, well, believe Christ, receive his grace, and then just continue to live your life the same way as you did before you received Christ. So someone is claiming faith in Christ, but you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell that they were a believer by any of, of their actions. And then there was no conviction. There was no remorse. And then, oh, I'm, I'm the child of God. And John's saying, no, I want to challenge that. You're saved by grace through faith. And when the Spirit of God lives inside of you, there's going to be conviction of sin. There's going to be transformation uh, that Christ does in our lives. I'd like to explain it this way. You know, you, you have two people that are struggling with the same sin. But one comes in, and, and let's, let's say it's adultery. 
and one comes in and says, you know what? I'm the child of God, and I don't think that God cares that I live in adultery, and God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy with my spouse. I mean, God is love, and love's going to make me happy, so I'm not happy with my spouse, but I'm, I am really happy with this person who, who's not my spouse, and I'm saved by grace, so I'm just going to keep practicing adultery. Four, you know, uh, that, that's going to be my attitude, okay? So that's, that's a one person. And you get another person that comes in and says, you know what? I did something I never thought I would do. I committed adultery, and I'm so broken before God, and I'm so broken before my spouse. Could God forgive me? So my counsel to the first person would be, you need to examine if you ever received Christ as your Savior. Because if you receive Christ as your Savior, you couldn't have this attitude towards sin. Because if the Spirit of God lives inside of you, the Spirit of God is going to make you extremely uncomfortable in adultery. And then the second person, I would go, you know what? Your broken heart and your fruits of repentance is evidence that the Spirit of God is living inside of you. And God forgives you and He wants to restore your life. Now take responsibility for your actions and begin to see God do a wonderful work of redemption. You see the difference of these two passages and these two responses uh, to this this passage and, and this section of Scripture. So it's important. I think John put it in there for a reason. In verse 10, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So how do you know a child of God and how do you know the child of the devil? Interesting, there's only two categories. You know, I'd like to think there's a lot more categories, but God says the child of God and the children of the devil, whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So the child of God is going to practice righteousness, is going to continue to try to grow in righteousness and to love his brother and sister in Christ. But children of the devil, they're not going to care about righteousness, and they're not going to care about loving others. In verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This has always been God's message. He is love, and he wants us to love one another. If we're growing in Christ, we're growing in our love and care for the body of Christ. Love is what really matters. That's what's important to the Lord. We have to clarify this in our day and age. Love from God's definition. Because a Christ-rejecting world has a definition of love, but God's got a definition of love, and it's 1 Corinthians 13. And that's a, a good place to look. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love's a commitment, it's an action, it's a verb, it's not, it's not just a feeling. And so when we begin to live out 1 Corinthians 13, we're right along with God's heart. That, that's been his message from the beginning. God gives us an example of someone who's a child of the devil in verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. So God says that he was of Satan and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. So this is an example of a child of the devil. This is an example of where our hearts go apart from Christ to to take somebody else's life. And why did Cain kill Abel? Interesting, the first sibling group ended in homicide, right? Sometimes I think we've got a very rosy picture of family, 
And the Bible has a very realistic view of, of family. So, oh, isn't it sweet? Cain and Abel are out playing together. Uh, you know. Wait a second, what, what went wrong here? They're adults, they're men, and Cain's living unrighteously, and he's jealous of Abel. God tells us that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he offered it in faith. The book of Hebrews tells us that. Cain didn't like that Abel had God's favor, and he didn't, and he responds by killing his, his brother. In verse 12, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. So we're called to love, but the world's going to respond in hate. Don't expect that love to be returned by a Christ-rejecting world. The Bible says don't be surprised if, if the world hates you. Verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So how do you know that you've passed from death to life? Do you care about believers? Do you care about your brother and sister in Christ? Do you find yourself wondering how this person is doing and reaching out to them and caring for their needs, sticking up for them? That's evidence that you've passed from, from death to life. Before you knew Christ as your Savior, did you care for believers? Did you care for the church? Did you care for the, the body of Christ? No. This is evidence that God has saved you, that you are the child of God. But if we're in a place where we hate our brother, then we're abiding in death. We're abiding in, in darkness. This is why it's so important to keep in mind forgiveness and not allowing resentment and bitterness to set into the point of hate. I mean, how do you get to a place of hate? Through unforgiveness and, and bitterness. And that happens to us sometimes. As believers, as the child of God, we get hurt by another believer and we allow ourselves to get to that place of hate. And if we're in hate... We're in a place of death. So Satan's the enemy of our soul. Do you think he would want us dwelling in death, dwelling in darkness? How could he get us to do that? By being bitter, by being resentful, by choosing not to forgive. If we're mindful of the debt that Christ has paid to forgive us, it becomes easier to forgive others. Having to forgive somebody that has hurt me, I'm releasing far less than God ever did for me. So he's forgiven me way more than he's ever going to require me to forgive someone else. Does that make sense? So as we're going through this message, I think it's important to respond. You know, if it's beholding the love of the Father and relating to God as a Father, press into that. If it's this reality of loving one another and there's a believer, we're talking about our brother or sister in Christ, hey, you say, you know what? There's bitterness there. Choose to forgive. Maybe that bitterness has turned to hatred. In your heart of hearts, you're like, you know what? I hope they just get what they deserve. I, I'm sick of dealing with them. I can't stand seeing them. I want to turn and run the other way if I, if, if I were to see them. And God's saying, wait a second. That's a place of death. He doesn't want us being there. It, it's going to destroy us and, and destroy others. In verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So how does God see hatred? He sees it as murder. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, verse 21, if you're, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. This is why we need Jesus to die upon the cross for us, because we're all murderers when it comes down to it. 
We, we all have this, this anger in our hearts and, and in our lives. And in those moments where we're angry, that eternal life is not abiding in us. We're not focusing on eternal life in, in those moments. In verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. And this is love's display. This is what it means to be the child of God. Jesus laid down his life for us. I love the way that this is worded. We know love because he laid down his life for us. This is the evidence of, of the love of God in, inside of us. The reason that we understand love is because Jesus sacrificially laid down his life for us on the cross. He paid our debt. There's no reconciliation without the debt being paid, and Christ paid the debt so that we could be reconciled to God. So for us to experience reconciliation relationally, it means we have to die. We've got to die to pay for somebody else's debt. We lay down our life for somebody else's wrong. You know, a lot of times we think of loving our brethren as helping them move, and that, that's absolutely true, or taking time to, to listen or to, to pray to, or go to a hospital, and it involves all of that. But sometimes it involves paying the price for their sin, paying the price for, for their debt. You get close enough to another believer and you're gonna discover they're a sinner, just like I am. I, I'm, I'm a sinner. And sometimes God's simply calling us to go to the cross for them and to lay down our lives for them because Jesus has laid down his life for us. Jesus didn't go to the cross preaching. He didn't go to the cross and say, you bunch of filthy, rotten sinners, I'm gonna die for you and I hope you appreciate this. Your sin is really costing me. By the way, I love you, right? He went to the cross in an amazing way as the lamb to the slaughter. He wasn't preaching at us. He allowed his actions to speak and he silently took our punishment upon the cross and then cried out, it is finished. Because a lot of times, if I'm paying the price for somebody else, even somebody else that I love, I want them to feel it a little bit. You know, like, did you know how much this cost me? You know, did you know how much I went out of my way? Did you realize how much I was holding my tongue? You know, by the time I'm done my, with my little sermon on my soapbox, they're like, I wish you wouldn't have done anything for me right? Because it made you feel so bad for it by the, by the time it, it's all done. And so, so this takes us to a whole nother level of love. Church, this is what family is all about. Your, your biological family and your church family. One of the things that's great about our, our families, marriage and our children, is it calls us to die for one another. It calls us to lay down our lives for, for each other because we get close enough to each other to, to realize e each other's sin and say, okay, I don't have to beat them up for it. I don't have to condemn them for it. I don't need to preach at them. It's just time for me to lay down my life because Christ laid down his life for me. And only Christ in us can give us this kind of love. But when you experience this kind of love, isn't it powerful? Amen. This is God's vision and, and his design is that he loves us and then expresses his love through the body through brothers and sisters in Christ, when you realize, man, this is God living through them that they would unconditionally love me this way. That when most people would run away, they don't run away. And they're willing to, to walk 
through this with me and go through hard times together with me. In verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Shutting off the love of God. So if we see a brother or sister in Christ that has physical needs and we have the the ability to provide for those needs, then open up your heart to God's love and be able to share and, and provide for that, that need that is, that is in their life. In verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. It's, it's fairly easy to express love in our words. I love you. I'm committed to you. And then it's another thing to follow up those words with, with our actions. Now, don't misunderstand. The words are important. This isn't uh, condemning speaking words of love and affirmation. There's nothing wrong with speaking words of love and affirmation. You know, husbands, if you try this with your wife and say, look, I'm going to tell you right now that I love you. And if anything ever changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> like, we're good, right? You know, your wife's like, Pack sand, you idiot. You know, like, what's, what's wrong with you? you know? of, of course, speak, speak words of love and speak words of affirmation, but allow your actions to follow up your words. Uh, allow the actions to match with, with the words. What makes Christ's words so valuable to us? It's his actions. It's the fact that he did lay down his life, that he did show us unconditional love upon the cross, when we experience his actions, we go, I want to pay attention to your words. You know? uh, my, my dad is, is one that chooses his words carefully um, and did, did a lot of listening in, in our growing up years. So when he spoke, you wanted to hear what he had to say, and then his actions backed up his words. They, they matched his words. And so it made to where I wanted to listen. To this day, it makes it to where I want to listen. It's always difficult to receive from somebody when their actions don't match up with their words. This is what you tell me, but then your actions show show something else. And that's convicting. If we're we're honest, that that convicts all of us and hopefully brings us to a place of then relying upon the Lord, not walking in condemnation, but, but growing, saying, Lord, help me to be able to love in word and in deed. In verse 19, and by this we know we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So if we're walking in love and we know we're in the truth and our hearts are assured before him. In verse 20, for if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. There's times when our heart does condemn us, doesn't it? And Satan and our flesh will use the word of God against us. Maybe even reading through this chapter, you're like, I, th- I thought I was saved until I read John 3. You know, and now I'm not sure, you know? So when our heart condemns us, we need to remember that God is greater than our heart. Aren't you th- so thankful that God's greater than your heart? Because our heart goes, goes up and down. So we can't trust our heart, but we can trust God's word. How do we know that we're saved? By our belief and faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1 tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're having the heart attack of condemnation, that's not of the Lord. We'll have heart conviction. The Spirit of God will convict us and move us to Christ and greater dependency upon his grace, but condemnation is not where the Lord would have us. In verse 21, beloved, if our heart 
does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. So John begins to say, God is greater than our hearts, but there is a place for our hearts to have confidence towards God, and it's through obeying his commands. And he very clearly describes what the command of God is in verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commands and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. This is speaking of the things that we ask according to his will, the things that are according to his name and nature. In verse 23, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. So our hearts don't condemn us if we're walking in God's commandment. And what is God's commandment? To believe on Jesus Christ and to love one another. Don't you love the clarity of that and the simplicity of that? What is God really after? What is he really desired? And that's for you to trust Christ and to love one another. And if you're trusting Christ for salvation and you're loving one another, then your heart has assurance before the Lord. In verse 24, now we keep his command, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. So as we're trusting in Christ and loving one another, we're abiding in Christ and he in him. So I'm abiding in the Lord and the Lord's abiding in me. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. We know that we're the child of God through the spirit who lives inside of us. As children of God, first know that you're loved. Behold what love the Father has bestowed upon you that you'd be called the child of God. Really live in, accept, relate to God as your Father. And then love God. Love, love God from that, that place. You're, you're my Father. You, you love me. I'm gonna be by your side. I'm gonna walk with you. I'm gonna be committed to you. And then love one another. Love one another. Respond and say, yeah, I, I want to lay down my life for others. Christ, you have laid down your life for me. And then I think, you know, if there is some part of you that for some reason, when you receive Christ as your Savior, you thought that that meant that you could continue on doing your own thing and being your own boss. And you do find yourself in that place of saying, I don't have conviction about sin. And in fact, I've, I've used God as a justification for, for my sin. And again, I'm not talking about struggle, and I'm not talking about experiencing conviction and sin, but maybe you find yourself in that place of willful rebellion with no conviction, and I would lovingly say to you, just examine the gospel once again and examine who Christ is again. Jesus came to abolish sin. And as we trust Christ for salvation, we turn to him as Lord. And what that means is we understand that he's our master and that he loves us enough to not allow us to stay in sin. He receives us just as we are, as we trust him in faith, but then he loves us too much to leave us there. And for some reason, if your understanding of the Christian life was, well, I basically just signed up for the greatest eternal life insurance policy, or I said I believe, I get to go to heaven, and then I do what I want with this life, and I'm going to habitually be in willful rebellion against God, I'd say, no, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we trust Christ, receive him by grace through faith, allow him to be the Lord of our life, and he begins to transform us and change us. 
and we realize, look, man, sin is so destructive. And yes, I'm struggling with sin and I falter in sin, but I don't want to stay there. I want to continue to be able to grow in Christ. The note I would like to end on tonight for us as children of God is, man, look forward to seeing him. What do we know is certain? We're going to behold him. Everything outside of that is very uncertain, but we're going to see God. And when we see God, we're going to be like him, and we're going to be satisfied when we awaken his likeness. There is going to be a moment where you're going to wake up and behold God, and you're going to be like Christ, and that's something to look forward to and hold on to that hope. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we've, we've had together. God, help us to not walk in condemnation. I pray that anybody wouldn't take this message in the tone of condemnation and that we could understand what it means to, to be your child and, and to know your love and live out in that love. God, if there's any here tonight that for some reason have never trusted you and they've never surrendered to you and they've never put their faith in you for salvation, maybe they've even used your name as a cloak for living a lifestyle of sin. God, would you touch them with your love? Would you show them your forgiveness and your plan for their life is, is far better than anything that we could come up with on our own? And Lord, we do look forward to the day that we're gonna see you, that we're gonna behold you. And Lord, please help us in loving one another. Help us in being willing to lay down our lives for each other. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.